All right, let's take our Bibles again and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. We have been looking at the imperative virtues of the Christian life, the Christian race. And so let's have a word of prayer before I I get into it. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we thank you for bringing us here together. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that your word is available to us. I pray, Lord, that we would be available to you and that we would be ready to uh, give you um, a hearing and then listen and obey your word and apply it to our lives. I ask you, Lord, for myself this morning, that Holy Spirit, you may take hold of me, speak through me the word of God clearly, convictingly, in a way that uh, will your people will learn and grow and um, grow stronger in their faith declarations. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, Hebrews chapter 13, we're going to be looking at verse 5 and 6 today. To to, to unpack this passage of Scripture, though, uh, I'm going to be going to several places and then coming back to it. Uh, We have, as I said, essentially we have been examining the marks of the Christian life. Now, that becomes important to us because the marks of the Christian life have to do with all of us. These are the things that God wants you to do as you grow in faith. These are the things that are going to become more evident in your Christian walk. Uh, And of course, they also are the sacrifices that we offer up to God. Every day we are a living sacrifice. We're offering up ourselves and our life to God every day. That those sacrifices that the Lord mentions here are are well-pleasing to Him. These are the things that please Him. And of course, especially in our relationships with other people, of course, first in our relationship with, with the Lord himself and so so far we have considered four of these marks in verse one brotherly love always that's always the mark of a believer secondly in verse two hospitality for those who need it be ready to be hospitable to those who need it verse three simple sympathy for those who are in trouble all right, those who are in trouble because of their faith in particular. And then, of course, verse 4, and the fourth virtue is purity before marriage and purity after marriage. That, that's how we exalt the institution of marriage, by a pure life. And uh, that's what honors God, that's what pleases God. So Christians, in the power of God's Spirit, are continually growing in these marks and these virtues. And now we come to a fifth virtue this morning in the Christian life. And it is one that is absolutely essential to persevering faith. In other words, the psalm that Greg mentioned this morning, Psalm 23, which we all really know, is really a faith declaration by King David. Because if you ever read the Psalms, you realize that David was in the valley way more than he was any place else. But in the valley, God taught him something. He taught him that I'm with you right to the end. But see, we don't learn that right away. We don't learn that uh, the first day we become believers. We don't learn that the second 
week or the second month or the second year sometimes, we learn that all throughout our Christian race, that we're going to find ourselves in the valley a lot of times. And so therefore, in that valley, God's going to teach us about Himself, right? If you grow in a knowledge of the character of God, your faith will grow. I've been saying that many times in the book of Hebrews, but that should lead you to a place, and myself to a place, that what God has shown me about Himself is real, and it's real every single day. And so therefore, I can say to people, in, because of what I've experienced in my Christian walk, what God has done for me. And I can tell, let me tell you what God has done for me. Let me tell you how God saved me. Let me tell you how God rescued me from this. Let me tell you how God met my needs. Let me tell you how the Lord spoke to me in sickness. Let me tell you what the church and God's people have helped me to learn. Let me tell you what God has done for me. See, those are faith declarations, and everyone has them. Everyone has them. But you know what? Some people don't tell other people what God's done for them, or they don't even recognize what's going on sometimes in their life. So see, this fifth virtue becomes the crowning point for reality in your everyday life. Because you have to ask yourself this question. Do I have this virtue? And is it constant in my life? What is it? Look at verse number 5. It says this in verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. And here's the virtue. Being content with what you have. Let me stop there. The virtue is realistic contentment. We must be content with what we possess on earth. And believe me, don't get this wrong. This is not just being satisfied. This is way more than that. Being content with what you have. Are you? Do you have discontentment statements or do you have content statements in your life? If people were to write up a little bio on you, would they say that you were a person mostly discontent or a person mostly content with what God has done in your life? So you see, before we can, be tru- before we can truly learn to live content, we must make sure that we're f- we free ourselves from a different defiling sin in this passage of Scripture. Just as impurity in verse number 4 just as impurity is a defiling sin and something that is not God's will for you, His will for you is an ongoing, continuous sanctification in purity where the Holy Spirit is essentially cleaning us up. He's cleaning you up and He's conforming you and your mind to God's good, acceptable, and perfect will. The other sin that needs to be cleansed and recalibrated is greed. It's our relationship to and our understanding of money, of possessions. 
that the Word of God tells us that greed is a defiling sin as much as impurity is, as much as immorality is, maybe even worse. In fact, if you just search out the Scripture, you'll find that this particular word immorality and greed are often in the same context sometimes in the same verse if you just go back to the decalogue the commandments the ten commandments the sixth sixth commandment says thou shalt not commit adultery right but following that is the seventh commandment thou shalt not steal and ending with thou shalt not covet all of them are a challenge to someone's heart Someone's mindset concerning possessions, concerning property, concerning what God has given you as opposed to what God has given someone else or what he has not given you as opposed to what he has not given someone else. See, our relationship to money. And there are similar occurrences in the New Testament. For example, a passage I already mentioned is in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 3. If you'd like to turn there quickly, where it says this, and Paul is telling uh, young Timothy uh, that, listen, in verse number 3 of Ephesians 5, but immorality or any impurity or greed, see, right in the same passage, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. In other words, that you and I have a relationship that must be changed when it comes to money and possessions. Another passage in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, it says that, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to what? Immorality, dead to impurity, dead to passion, dead to evil desire, dead to greed. And then it says this in Colossians, Greed which amounts to idolatry. Another way of saying it is that greed has in it a power to get people to want things so much that in reality, what they desire, they actually live for, and what they live for, they ultimately worship. So many people worship money, and they may not even say they worship money, but they do. Many people's motive is to get wealth so they could retire and live the easy life, so they can get things that they want and constantly fill the desire for things. And so Scripture says that if you live like that, that actually is idolatry. That's actually putting money up on a pedestal and bowing down and worshiping it because what you give you your time to, what you think about, what your goals are, if they're all revolved around money, then you know what? You're all wrong. You can't be content if you live with that mindset. You can't have biblical contentment if you live like that. So if you look at our text in verse number 5 of chapter 13, it says, make sure that your character, ah, your character, who you are, make sure your character is free, not in bondage to, 
free from what? The love of money. So it's the love of money that is going to hinder us from being biblically content. So Christians, Christians are to have a non-money-loving disposition. That's a good way to put it. We're to have a non-money-loving disposition. Now, let's, let's face it, we all need money. God's given it to us. It's needed for this world. But see, we take it and we move it to a place that God never intended for it to be. In other words, your behavior toward money and its usage has changed, hopefully, since you've been a believer, or is changing right now. Today it may change more. In fact, there is an interesting Greek word that is used by the writer of Hebrews in this particular passage of Scripture, which means to turn. Make sure your character is free from money. It's, it is the word that means to turn, or to turn the mind. It's to turn the manner of your life, to turn the conduct of your, of, of your behavior toward money to the place that honors God. To a place where you move away from any kind of intention of idolatry. So this section of Scripture is connected somewhat to chapter 10 of, uh, of Hebrews. And let's turn back there for a minute because these people, remember, they were under persecution. They lost their property, right? They lost their religion in the sense they, they moved from Judaism into Christianity. And, and because of that move, many of them lost their jobs. They lost their, their position in their society they lost a lot of stuff. And so therefore, probably money was a lot harder to come to than it was before. People, even family members, didn't help out anymore. So it had to be the church that stepped in to help these people. And so what happened is in chapter 10, and this is where I'm, it lays the foundation for what is said in chapter 13. Remember that... These Christians, once they looked more closely at their past troubles, at, as, at their past sufferings, they discovered after closer examination that they gained more from being a Christian, from being one of God's children, than they can ever gain from having a lot of money or a lot of possessions or for having what they did have before. Matter of fact, they gained six things and in verse 32 of chapter 10 remember it says remember the former days when after being enlightened the first thing they gained was light what was the light it was the light that came into their heart by the spirit of god and the saving knowledge of the gospel through jesus christ that made them christians that delivered them from the old works of Judaism and brought them into a peaceful relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. And so, same thing for us. Before conversion, we're, we were dead with no spiritual hunger. We, we didn't desire the bread of life, the river of the water of life. We, we didn't want the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We had no thirst for righteousness. Not until God stepped in. Not until he 
penetrated your heart with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, we were, we just, all that we had before is darkness, no light. Everything in regard to God's grace and all spiritual things were dead. We were spiritually unresponsive. And then we were born again into God's family and we were quickened by the Holy Spirit and we were made alive to the things of God and there was spiritual movement in our life and that showed spiritual life. And so therefore everything changed. And so, see, you already started moving in your thinking on a lot of things, on all things, matter of fact. Especially this thing about money. A second thing they learned in verse 32 is that they learned endurance to endure a great conflict of suffering. See, they bore bravely and calmly ill treatment and held fast to their confession in Christ by enduring spiritual combat as a soldier of Jesus Christ. So, see, their trials actually made them strong in faith in God's promises. A third thing they gained was a deep appreciation for the church. You know why? They had to depend on other people. So God brought them from the you, the me, the I, to the us. And they now, the church realized, listen, we can't live the Christian life alone. We must have the church that is coming alongside of all of us. We need the church. We need each other. And so therefore, they grew in a deeper appreciation of the church body that was living because Christ was indwelling those who came together. A third, a fourth thing they learned was sympathy. They went from, again, from me to people. They started sympathizing with other people who had needs. And maybe people that they never, ever before would have associated with or even talked to. Now they are beginning to see them who they are. Not only sinners who need Christ's grace and gospel, but people who need help. They need light, and they were able to give it. A fifth, fourth thing they learned, a fifth thing they learned was joy. Look at verse number 34. And here is where the connection is. While losing affection and attachment from things, they gained joy and accepted joyfully, verse 34 in the middle of the verse, the seizure of your property. They discovered a joy inexpressible when they had their earthly possessions taken away from them. Why? Because they calculated. They did the math. They calculated that what has been gained by being in Christ could never measure up to any materialistic gain or any temporal pleasure. It couldn't come close. So you're talking about real believers here who understand what they gain in Christ. And why can Christians have this attitude? Because as in verse number 34, and I'd like you to look to the last part of that verse, they had a turn of mind. Look what it says. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession, a lasting one. That word knowing that word knowing they know matter of fact knowing is to know positively here i know i am an owner of things that are permanent i know that i have treasure far better than the best i could ever hold to or have on this earth on this earth the moth comes and destroys the rush comes and decays the robber comes and steals it 
but the treasure that I have as a believer, like he said back in Hebrews chapter 9, and those who have been called may receive the promise of what? Eternal inheritance. That's what I have in Hebrews chapter 11. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one, one who has been a country that has been prepared for them by God himself. In fact, as I was mentioning a few weeks ago, this is really, that kind of language like in, in chapter 9 is wedding language. Jesus says, like in, in John chapter 14, I go and prepare a place for you, you know, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again. That's wedding language. That's where the, the man would say to the woman, I want to be engaged to you. And then re, in, in a Jewish context, it would be a year before they got married because what would the husband do? He would leave his wife and go prepare a dwelling place for both of them to live. Sometimes that meant building it, adding it on to your father's house or the, someone in the community's house. And so you would do that, and then you would prepare everything to go back and get your bride and bring her to the place you'll dwell with her forever. That's what God is saying to us. And they understood that this was language that was very, very intimate. And so they understood in their mind, listen, God has gone and he's prepared a city for us. Why? What is he doing right now? He's preparing a dwelling place for us. And then what is his promise? I will come and get you. Why? Because we are his bride. We are the ones who are married to Jesus Christ. We have that relationship with him. And so, therefore, that is what you gain in Christ. Why would you ever want to throw that away? See, if you think seriously about what you have gained by being in Christ, you will conclude that it would be utterly foolish to throw away so precious and valuable a gift. So here's the logical imperative in chapter 10 look at verse 35 and this is what the connection is to chapter 13 it says therefore 1035 do not throw away what your confidence wait a minute confidence in what do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward see that's what the Word of God is telling us there, that we are to not throw away the confidence that God has been building up in us about what He has been doing, who He is, first of all, and then what He has promised, and then what He has done that will ultimately loosen your tongue to make a faith declaration. See, but if you love money, you can't make those declarations. You know why? Because it's really not God who helps you. It's really money who helps you. Money takes care of everything. If I only had enough money, I could do it. If I only have enough people think I thought like that for many years, and so did you. And sometimes you do right now, if I only had. So, biblically, if you're going to have biblical contentment, you have to consider the danger to avoid, the disposition to acquire, and then the declaration to pronounce. And look at verse, well, 
before I get there, let your, the turn of your mind be free of money, the love of money, and be content with what you have. So there is a danger to avoid in verse number, uh, chapter 13 and verse number 5, and that's to make sure that your character is free of the love of money. So the danger of making money or possessions the center of one's affections is at stake here. That money will master you, either by your constant worrying that you don't have enough of it, or by your constant desire to want to have more and more of it. And you know what? You don't have to ever have money to have these things going on. These, may, these, these have guided many people's lives. Many people are in slavery to the love of money and are steeped in worry every day of their life because of that thing. Because they're putting all their stock in that. If I only had that, if I only could acquire this, then my whole life would change. Well, the Lord said concerning money in Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the others. You cannot serve God and wealth. You can't do it. The Lord said that himself. That's pretty clear. You can't have both things going on. You can't love both things impossible the apostle paul teaches uh pastors to teach their people in first timothy chapter six in fact you you should turn to this passage of scripture if you haven't never looked at it or read it before he says to them listen teach your people this uh in chapter six and verse number six but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment but then in verse seven he says for we brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. In verse number 8, if you have food and covering with these, you shall, we shall be content. So if you have food and if you have covering, that's all God said he would provide to you. But see, we want much more than that, don't we? We want things. You know, one thing that this flood taught me is that we got too much stuff. I don't know how many dumpsters we filled up with just stuff. We had in our basement for 10 years. I didn't even know what was in there. I told my son Josh, don't even tell me what's in there. Just throw it away. And you know what? I, I, I don't miss it, and I probably never will miss it. And, and yet, at one time, those things were very important, right? Always hoarding up stuff, always getting another shelf, you know? putting another shelf up, you know, expanding things, getting bigger space for what? Our stuff. You know, if you really have ever looked at yourself, you don't take up much room, but your stuff does. Look what it says in verse number nine. It says, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Look at verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it, not, not actually acquiring it, just longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves 
with many griefs. So there's what love of money will bring you. It'll bring you all those things. I, I don't know how many more things you could add it there in that passage of Scripture. And, of course, the wisdom literature of King Solomon uh, really brings to light the mind-turning principles concerning money management. If you just look, read through the, the, the Proverbs, you'll find that there are, there are a lot of Proverbs about money. In fact, one of them, uh, some of the principles that you can glean from that is at least the first one would be something like those who honor the Lord with their money are blessed in return. It, it, that comes from uh, Proverbs 3, verse 9 and 10, where it says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. See, the, the principle is this. Listen, all that you have comes from God. And if you learn to turn it around and give it back to God, you know what? If you do that, then you'll be blessed in return. Not always financially blessed, but blessed in way, all kinds of ways. All kinds of ways innumerable to even count. And see, that's what happens when God changes your mind concerning what is this all about, money. A second principle from Proverbs would be that those who make riches their passion lose much more than they gain. For example, Proverbs 23 verse 4 and 5 it's and this 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 proverbs really rang in my mind when i first read it and i was going through proverbs where it says in verse 4 of proverbs 23 do not weary yourself to gain wealth cease from your consideration of it don't be all frantic to gain wealth why when you set your eyes on it it is gone for wealth certainly itself uh, makes wings like an eagle and flies towards the heaven. Isn't that what happens? You get some money in this hand, you just give it to that hand, and there it goes. Right? That's, what, that's the way it is. You know what? But that's all right. Because money is never for more than just providing your basic needs and the needs of others to have it so you're not kept in slavery so you can give. Work so you can give. Also, in Proverbs, wisdom gives wealth guidance all over the place. You have scripture like this. Take my instruction and not silver, the knowledge rather than choice, choicest gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable, desirable things cannot compare with her. My fruit is better than gold, even pure gold, and my yield better than the choicest of silver. He's talking about wisdom. Listen, if you want to get something that's really precious, get wisdom. And once you get it, Proverbs says, and you get your hand on it and you understand it, don't let it go. Don't exchange it for anything. Why? That's going to get you through life being content with whatever God has given you. And then, of course, there's a principle also in Proverbs that money cannot buy life's most valuable possessions. And what are some of those most valuable possessions? Well, like peace. Money can't buy peace. Like Proverbs 15, 16 says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Wealth can't buy love. 
Proverbs 15, 17, better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fattened ox served with hatred. A good name and reputation. Proverbs 22, 1, a good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. So a good name, a person of integrity, is much more desirable for those who know the Lord than anything that money could supply. In fact, money can only buy things that are for sale. And happiness and a clear conscience and freedom from worry is not among them. That comes from God. It's, it's neat how in Proverbs, God says, I bless some people with money and don't give them the joy to couple it with joy to in, you know just enjoy rejoicing what they have they never they never know that or they save up all their life they die and all their money goes to a person they never wanted to go to see that's that's what happens also integrity is another thing in proverbs 28 6 better is the poor who walks with in his integrity than he who is crooked through though he be rich See, this happens all the time. This is everything about what our society is about. See, money can be used to purchase lovely and comfortable dwellings. It can be used to purchase vacations and delightful works of art and many beautiful things. But the priceless things in life are just simply not for sale. That's why the Lord says, if you're going to come and get salvation, come and get it freely without cost can't buy salvation doesn't matter how rich you are you can't get it like that so it's not about that it's about poverty of spirit and maybe the, there is nothing more nerve wracking than the headaches and heartaches that come from financial irresponsibility people increasing their indebtedness with credit cards people spending impulsively without going back home and asking themselves honestly do I really need that if you think about it for about five seconds you won't buy it or lending money to people indiscriminately who don't deserve it and the people who do deserve it you withhold it from them If that happens to be your situation this morning, then you can't ignore it any longer. You, you can no longer make excuses because there's just too much help concerning this particular area today. You must have a mind turning and be free from money's slavery because that's what money brings with it. It brings a slavery and Instead, you, have, you and I need to have a disposition of contentment. So, and then when we do, it's great benefit to us. It's a, great, it's a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord Jesus Christ that God has shown himself to us every day to be faithful, to be trustworthy, to be present in the time we need help. If that's true, then to love money and trust its ability to get things and to supply needs is really a disposition that shows a lack of trust 
in God's care and his desire to provide for his children. It was, I think, Chuck Swindoll who said, greed is a cancer of attitude, not caused by insufficient funds, but by inappropriate objectives. That discontentment is a sneaky thief who continues to disrupt our peace and steal our happiness so we can't have contentment. Well, our passage of Scripture says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. So once we realize and once we come to the place that we begin to think about, listen, I need to avoid this danger, then the next thing we need to do is acquire the proper disposition. And the proper disposition is the disposition of contentment. With whatever God has given us, little or much, be content. This is the cure of all love of money, of all worry about money. Let your turn of mind be free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Not what somebody else has. Not keeping up with the Joneses. Not saying to yourself, why am I in this position and someone else who is much more evil than I am, they're not. They don't ever seem to be in a position like I'm in. See, always comparing yourself with other people is very, very dangerous to this mindset of contentment, to this mind change of contentment. Instead, of course, we have to learn contentment. In fact, it was the Apostle Paul in the Philippians chapter 4 who said very, very clearly that, listen, I am free from the... From the uh, from the worry of circumstances and from the worry of things and possessions. Why? I've learned something. I'm so glad Paul said that he learned something. I'm, I really am. He learned, listen, that he doesn't have to sin the sin of discontentment. And it was my friend by reading Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor and preacher of God's Word, who says, Paul was not mastered by his circumstances if, he, if, if it can't be changed, do not let it master you, he said. Bring, bring you down or take control of you. Determine your misery or your joy. You should never let those things happen. He gives us a picture of having equilibrium in all situa situa situations. And what are they? In, Hale in he, um, Philippians chapter 4, in verse number 12, he gives us really a breakdown pretty simple breakdown in just one passage he says listen this is how i learned to have contentment he says i know how to get along with humble means all right without a sense of grudging or complaint or questioning god's goodness he says i do it without a bitter spirit i do it without being worried or anxious I do it without losing faith. He says, I know how to ha get along in humble means uh, and going hungry and, of course, suffering need. And then he says, and also, I know how to live in prosperity. Wait a minute, if God does prosper me 
at times in my life, there may be spurts of prosperity. I'm going to do that uh, without feeling independent of God. Once I get money, Lord, I don't need you. I only needed you when I didn't have money. When I got money, I don't need you. I can do a lot of stuff more because I have money, so I'll come to you when I need you. No, he says, no, money never brought me to the place. Prosperity never brought me to the place where I felt independent of God or without being manipulated by wealth or ultimately I didn't forget God. I learned not to do those things. And so that's what we have to do. So Paul learned the lesson to live without allowing circumstances to affect his inner peace or his inner joy that God carried him into various kinds of conditions Yet he was not lifted up by the one or cast down by the other. He learned contentment upon God's supply. See, it was all about his relationship with God. It's all, it was all about what he already knew he had in Christ. It was all about what, he had, what God had promised him. So, just let me mention that the great truth behind Paul's spirit of contentment is that God is by providence ordering all things in your life. Do you think there's anything that happens in your life by coincidence? By just some mishap that God just kind of missed. He didn't get it. You, th- you think that's true? No. In fact, when you think that way, you're already being robbed of the contentment God wants to give you. He wants you to learn. See, we have to let a Christian often think with himself, who's placed me here? Why do I live at this time now? Why do I have the job I have? Why do I have such a little money? <laughs> or maybe, why do I have abundance when other people, other people's don't? See, no matter what sphere you're in, it should never hire you to a higher sphere or bring you lower. It keeps you on a balanced ground. It's not by chance or fortune as the heathen people, as the Gentiles imagine, as you and I used to imagine. No, it is the wise God who has providentially fixed you in your orb where you're at at the time you're here. And so God has set us in a situation and has done it by wisdom. You know why? This is my conclusion, that God knows better than me about what I should have or not have, where I should be and not be, where I should go and not go. And we have to learn that. We have to stumble through that. We have to walk a lot in the valley of the shadow of death. Why? Because there we're going to find out I don't have to fear evil. Why? Because God's there leading me, comforting me, teaching me, reminding me, bringing me to the ultimate goal that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's where I'm heading. And no one, no circumstance, nothing's going to stop that from happening. See, that is what increases your faith and that's what brings you to a place where you can actually cry out to God and tell Him how you praise Him for His help. 
See, the wise God has ordered our condition. If he sees it better for us to abound, we shall abound. If he sees it better for us to be in want, we shall be in want. So to be content is to be at God's disposal. To be content is to be in the place where God has brought you there. Jeremiah Burroughs, in his rare book, an old Puritan, actually 1600s written, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, he said this, that the Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits and delights in God's wise and father disposal of every single condition. I don't know how Paul, when, when floating in the ocean on a log, thought, wow, God's ordered this for me. Uh, this, is, this is a great day. You know, this is really just starting out great. And, and, or when he had his back whipped 39 times with a whip, three, four times, uh, it, the Word of God tells us. Is that a great day? Was that ordered by God? Yes. And it was ordered by God not only for Paul, but for others, for us, for the church, for the the greater glory of God. Do I understand that? No, I don't understand that. But you know what Paul says? I've learned in that situation to be content and just rest. Lord, if this is what you have for me, I'm just going to rest back on that with a quiet spirit and uh, an inward peace and and just watch what you're going to do. See, so this brings me to my last thing in our passage of Scripture. And I'd like you to turn back to Hebrews. And I told you I was going to come around back to the passage because this, all that has to do with what he says next in this passage of Scripture. And it's this. It leads us to a third consideration. And here's the consideration. The declaration worth pronouncing. Here's a declaration worth pronouncing. Why well our minds have been informed with truth and we now have something far better than any earthly wealth can bring us and we believers possess the greatest things of all. And what are they? Well, look in verse number five. It says this, make sure that your character is free of the love of money, being content with what you have. For, notice what it says, for he himself has said I will never desert you nor will I ever forsake you he said that to us I will never abandon you I will not let you go in fact he's actually quoting from he's bringing uh, the image from Deuteronomy chapter 31 when he told his people when they went into the promised land he says when you go there into the promised land be strong be be courageous do not be afraid or tremble at them why there's wall cities armies chariots very intimidating things you're going to come up against giants are living in the lands and you're going to go there don't be afraid of any of them why and this is what he says in verse number six of deuteronomy uh he says He will not fail you or forsake you. And then in verse number 8 of the same chapter, he said this, 
He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And then he tells Joshua, finally, when they go into the land, and now the leadership is transferred from Moses to Joshua, this is what it says in Joshua 1 and verse number 5, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I have been with Moses. I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be courageous strong for you shall give this people possession of the land which i swore to their fathers to give them so see god is saying here what we have here is a promise of the continual presence of god that god is vocal with us where he says something generous to us and what does he say to us listen you know what when you become believers i will never abandon you ever in any circumstance in any situation in any social uh, stratus you are in in that particular time i will never let you go in that situation even though you may feel i am not there even though you may sense in your weak spirit at that time that maybe god's left me i want you to have this going on in your mind and i say this to you i declare this to you i will not abandon you or let you go you have to have that in your mind as a believer in fact that's what growing in faith will bring you because look at what it says in the passage look in verse number six so god says to us and then we say back to him and we declare to others we say in return to god verse number six so that we notice what it says so that we confidently say I, that word has been used all throughout hebrews that this is a confident declaration about what? About what you have experienced, about what things? That God has never left you? You have never been starving to death? You've always had a roof over your head, maybe not the ideal place that you thought you should have at that particular point, but you have been warmed and filled all your basic needs have been met. And not only that, He's given you your word to fill your heart and to fill your mind and to increase the promises, make the promises clear in your mind about where you're heading to. See, all those things, as you experience them along the way and as you have stories to tell each other about what God's done, then you pass it down to the next generation. You pass it down to the next person i just one particular story that i just wanted a short one that when when i first got out of the marine corps i i uh, had applied uh, for unemployment because i was and in and so in the meantime i i got a little job i had it for a couple weeks and then i didn't work out and so that when i went back to the employment office this is back then the employment office says oh you worked oh you, you canceled out all your unemployment so what so i had no money had no job and um that's when i had met jane and i said okay if i'm gonna get married after short engagement i says i have to get a ring but i had no money for a ring i, I was really broke i was that was the broke as i've ever been in my life and so but i was just asking lord what do you want me to do and so I'm praying, and then I go to the mailbox one day, and the government owed me a certain amount of money. And it happened to be almost the exact amount of money that the ring would cost. And so it was a confirmation. 
that God does supply needs. When we cry out to him, when there's no other solutions possible, he helps us. He enters in. And you know what? That's just one of many events in your life and my life that what? Increased my faith. For, for, for what? So I can declare this. What is it? So I can say confidently, look at verse number six. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? What can you possibly do to me? Take my life? Go ahead. I have life in Christ forever. You're going to take my home? Go ahead. I have a mansion in glory. You're going to take my wealth? I'm the wealthiest person who's ever lived. I have an, an internal inheritance. See, those are the things that increase our faith that we can actually declare to God. God has helped me. My Lord and Savior has helped me. Money has not helped me. Possessions have not helped me. The Lord has helped me. And see, that's a faith declaration. And believe me, when you have a whole bunch of faith declarations, it's going to come from what you learned, what you experienced, that the promises that the promise of God's continual help is real to you. It's not just in the a passage of Scripture tucked away theoretically. It is reality to you. God has entered into my life. He is working through me. He is sustaining me. He is keeping me. He'll never abandon me or forsake me. And so therefore, I will say, my Lord has helped me. And if my Lord has helped me, I need the help of no other. See, so contentment becomes a vocal expression expressed in a calm, in a trust, in your satisfaction in the lot that God has given you and just simply trusting him for it. See, that's what it's all about. Now, but, realize this. Your desires may not be lined up with God's will at the moment. As of yet. But when they do, and they will for real believers, especially in regard to money and contentment, then you will say to God before others with confidence, let me tell you about the time God did this for me. Let me tell you about the time that the Lord held me, provided my needs, gave me comfort in my heart when I should never had it, allowed me to put my head on my pillow without, without worrying about what's going to happen the next day concerning my wealth or my bills or this person or that person, because I'm trusting him. Do you realize this? You cannot do this without the power of the Spirit of God. You can't have this mind change without God's Spirit working in you. But when you learn it, you'll never go back. 
because it's going to be what? A declaration that comes out of your mouth with great confidence. And you know what that is? That's praise and worship. You're going to be worshiping God in very strange places at very unusual times. And just lifting up your heart to the Lord and saying, Lord, you are amazing. You are so great and awesome. I don't deserve any of this. I don't deserve your goodness and your kindness and your patience and your long-suffering with me. I deserve none of it, but Lord, thank you that you allow me to experience these things. And I pray, Lord, as I do, constantly loosen my mouth to give you the glory, to give you the praise, to give you these faith declarations to people that may never have heard it before through what you're due through people's lives. See, that's what it means to grow in faith. That's what it means to have contentment and grow in that. And so it's appropriate in chapter 13 for him to conclude like this and for us to understand, listen, this is how you want to live. There's no other way to live. Make sure you're free from money and whatever God's given you, be content. And if you are, then you'll be praising God the rest of your life. And you'll start here, and will it end? No. Worship doesn't end. It's going to go on for what? All eternity. And so that is our goal as believers. Let's pray. Lord, thank you once again for your awesome goodness to us. I pray, Lord, that the word of God would stick firmly in our minds I pray Lord that this particular passage and the principles that come out of it would be characteristic of our lives and that Lord you may use every one of us to open up our mouths and to give you declarations of faith and contentment about how great you are and I pray, Lord, through it in our life, it may open up many opportunities to bring us to a place where we first started. We were in darkness and we needed light that we'd be able to give light to people by sharing the gospel with them. Please do that, Lord. Let us always be ready for those who are going to come into our lives who don't know you. And let us always be growing in these virtues so as to adorn the gospel of Christ. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, let's